This is David Wilson and welcome to episode one of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. Against the soundtrack of the wind blowing through my garage door of my temporary studio and summer coming to an end, losing my job and all of that COVID malarkey, we're living in strange times. On another track is talking to people that we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. Okay, well, let's get started. Okay, I'm going to count us in three, two, one. My gazebo is literally rocking and shaking like a van at a hippie rock concert. That's Tom Matty, my guest for today. He's managed to steal a couple of hours out of his busy schedule to come and help us save thousands of dollars if we're in the situation that I've been in for the last year of getting divorced. I first met Tom through our networking group Networking with a Twist here in Edmonton, Alberta. To say I liked Tom off the bat was a complete understatement. He was clear, concise, and to the point. But most of all, he was angry. And that intrigued me, and I wanted to get to know this man more. Hence why he's the first guest on our new podcast series, On Another Track. Tom is one of the first McKenzie friends in North America. Welcome, Tom. <laughs> Thank you, David. Well, uh, so, uh, anger acts quality people, I guess, eh? <laughs> I'll have to remember that. Arr, Hulk! <laughs> Yeah, well, no, and I mean, I suppose that's the point. You know, I think when you make a first impression on somebody, it's that it's that first what couple of minutes that you meet somebody, you're even twenty seconds, they say, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I find that you were kind of you had this amazing passion, but you were angry as well, and I just wanted to know so much more about what was going on there. First of all, I just want to correct something, and then I want to talk about that anger issue thing. So first off, um, as far as I know, I am the only professional McKenzie friend in North America. Um, surprisingly, despite it being something that's, you know, a thing in the UK and uh, in Singapore and some other countries, it's never somehow caught on in Canada, uh, which is, of course, is a Commonwealth country, you'd think it would, or the United States, where it could be quite useful. But hey, my dream someday, it can, it can go there. The anger thing is interesting to bring up because I deal with a lot of angry people uh, working in family law. You see a lot of very, very strong emotions of people. And anger is certainly among them. And I think it's interesting because I don't dislike anger. It's actually an interesting emotion. It can be a powerful tool to get things done if used and channeled in the right way. And I came across this actually in my own case when a social worker once was challenging me and saying, well, your emotions aren't right. You know, when your kids have been taken and, you know, your emotions don't don't fit. And I thought, well, is there any is there, there's a right way to feel when these things happen to you? I mean, isn't it very subjective and personal? I found quite often that getting angry and then channeling it the right way can actually lead to a lot of great actions being done. And I think that's the way kind of our ancestors sometimes got great things accomplished. The fact that our society now turns away from anger and says, oh, no, no, you can't be angry ever, no matter how justified, no matter how righteous, no matter maybe how necessary to give people the kick they need to uh, embark on a difficult challenge, um, our society now just eschews it completely. And I don't think that's right. So um, yeah, if, if I think anger is the emotion that is best suited to an occasion, 
um, I will enter into it. But let's just say that my anger, when you see it, it's typically kind of a thoughtful thing. I, I enter into that state not unconsciously. I kind of let myself fall into it because I know it will get me going sometimes. And sometimes I have, I have troubles getting out of those procrastinative states. But, you know, that's the thing. Uh, maybe we're confusing anger with passion as well, you know, because that really is one of the bedrocks of any type of business is you have to be passionate about what you feel and what you want to do. So really what we're seeing is probably very directed passion that can be misinterpreted as anger. And that's the thing that I liked is that, you know, what is fire in this guy? You know, that what's the fire in the belly, you know? And that was the thing that intrigued me. So can we maybe sort of go, and we can talk about anger and the emotions later on in the podcast. I want to talk a little bit about more about Mackenzie Friend, because for a lot of our listeners, they will not have a clue what a Mackenzie Friend is. So can you give me just an idea, what, what is a Mackenzie Friend? What's the bottom, bottom line on this? No, that's true. And, you know, even people from the England and, and uh, places where it is quite fashionable don't really seem to have heard of it or talk about it very much. And they really should be, because in my practice of it, it's been tremendously effective to help people. So what it is, it's essentially a lay person. And in fact, it's preferably a lay person, according to the Windsor Law School, which has done some studies on it here in Canada. Um, it's somebody who helps a person, typically the reference of it and the common case law that supports it, which is from the 1970s, McKenzie v. McKenzie. It's essentially an intention is that it's somebody who sits in the courtroom with a litigant, a self-representing litigant, and provides silent support. So that means taking notes um, when they need a particular document, the McKenzie friend flips to it and finds it and uh, passes it to them. And it's sort of a, just a quiet support, you know, just having that McKenzie friend near you helps calm people down a lot. Now, in practice, though, there's a much broader latitude both in and out of the courtroom. And I'll get to those things. So quickly, out of the courtroom, there's actually a lot of information about family available online through various things like resolution services here in Edmonton and in Calgary. Um, through lawyer referrals, Edmonton has a, a law clinic. There's a lot of these resources, but they're kind of scattered. They're not aggregated, and they're in many ways overwhelmed. And so people even accessing these resources, which are free and public and, and useful, uh, people struggle to navigate them. And that's where the McKenzie friend steps in. It's typically an experiential expert who's been through the system, been through all these things, dealt with a lot of people, a lot of different cases, and knows how to navigate it. And so the friend can kind of like any good friend, you know, if you're fixing your car and you've never say changed a headlight and you've got a buddy who's done that, you'll say, Hey, you know, can you help me do this? And your friend comes over and says, yeah, you take this bolt off and, you know, take this bolt on, whatever. I'm mean, against your friends like that, but in about law things. Um, now in the courtroom, it's interesting because the intention was the silent support, but what's really wonderful is some of the judges that are very open to really getting, you know, solving problems, um, have on occasions, you know, let the McKenzie friend uh, help the litigant. Um, so sometimes, you know, when the client's up there, they're very nervous talking to the judge. And so if there's maybe five really important points and material issues they have to present to the court, they're going to forget two of them. And so sometimes I'll just sort of yank on the you know, yank, yank on the client's sleeve and, hey, uh, you know, Frank, you, you forgot <laughs> a couple of them. And the judges are very fine with that. You know, they want to get all the evidence. They want to get all the sides clearly explained. Um, there was one occasion where a client just broke down. He, he just couldn't speak. He kind of shut down and started going all over the place. 
And in this case, the judge was, was really nice and just said, well, hold on. Um, would you let your friend, you know, would that be okay if your friend maybe spoke to you, for you for a minute? And so I actually got to sort of just say, well, you know, uh, what Mr. Smith here is trying to say is, you know, da, 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 da. And then I turned to Mr. Smith and say, is that, is that right? And he nods his head and the judge goes, okay, now, now I get it, you know, and we can move on. So Mackenzie friends can, A, of course, help the self-representing litigant greatly. And they can really assist the judges in the courts because they really help the self-representing litigant to be calm, to present themselves concisely and clearly. I always do like some coaching of clients before they go into court and sort of say, here's what's going to happen. Here's what you'll see. If the judge asks you a question, don't go off on these emotional kind of tirades that can happen. You know, when they want a question, they have a very specific reason for asking it and they really just want that question answered very directly. So yeah, it helps the, it helps the judges a lot. And I can quickly also list off, you know, I have a lot of clients who have lawyers and the McKenzie friend can be very helpful to the lawyers too. It's a, it's a great thing. Um, it's a win, win, win for everybody in family law. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's that disruptive new system that's needed now to fix something that is really archaic and needs some very new, new ideas coming into it. Got you. So I wanted to sort of delve a little bit deep, deeper, and you did actually touch on the point very briefly, McKenzie versus McKenzie. I just wanted to get the background sort of history of, of where that came from. And did you say it was from the UK originally? As I understand, it was from Scotland, and, and maybe I can uh, give you some more research on this or even the actual case. But yeah, it was a fellow who you know went sat a trial, and he had a barrister friend from London who was not licensed to practice in Scotland. But his friend was willing to help him, and so his friend tried to go into the courtroom with him to sit with him, and the judge wouldn't allow it. And he actually won his appeal on that basis that, you know, the appellate court said, nope, a self-representing person can have a friend. And that's how that became known as the McKenzie friend, because that was the, the case for it. Gosh, that's pretty interesting. So I'm intrigued. How did you get into this? Because your background's not law, is it? No, my background is actually STEM, you know, physics and mathematics. Um, the last couple jobs I had before getting into this was I was an adjunct professor and then I worked for aerospace companies in Asia. So no, definitely not. Um, and in a way, that's a good thing. You know, my very extensive management experience and my experience was often in fixing broken processes. And so it was surprising when I you know, I was a professor at the time, my own family law case, you know, emerged and turned high conflict pretty quickly. And I walked into it with some assumptions, you know, as, as I think many people do in Canada and other developed countries, you expect certain things, certain evidentiary requirements, certain, you know, we, we tend to think of the very technical, very highly um, regimented criminal or civil law systems as being the same in family court. And they're just not, there's a, huge uh, broad latitude of judicial discretion and and conduct and evidentiary standards and stuff in family law which is actually why i think mckenzie friends work very well in that and probably wouldn't be as effective in say criminal or civil cases mm -hmm. where the, the highly technical natures i think lend themselves much more appropriately to professional lawyers helping litigants but um in this particular matter um i had this background. I walked into court and I was shocked. I had never seen such a broken system 
in my entire life. And I like fixing broken systems. Now, to try and break the broken loss system as a litigant, as a participant, is difficult. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I was very tied up in my own case and it turned very bad. You know, my kids at one point were taken overseas and uh, we went through everything from, you know, docket court hearings to special chambers hearings to conferences and stuff. And it was just really fraught with a lot of conflict. So I got to experience firsthand all the different parts of the courts. And I got to experience court in different countries. And I experienced some, I think, very bad lawyers. And I met a couple of good ones. And I experienced some bad judges and some good judges. So that experience uh, made me very aware of, you know, some of the ways you had to navigate the system. And part of the way like, I was feeling really terrible with what I was going through. And I really found a group called the ECMAS, the Equitable Child Maintenance and Access Society here in Edmonton. Uh, they're called ECMAS, ECMAS. And I think they've got a they've got a Facebook page and a website, ECMAS.org. They're really good. And meeting the people there who were all going through the sort of stuff as, as me, uh, some to a lesser degree, but they got me to uh, interested in helping other people. And so that's how I kind of got into into this was helping other people. And then I had to go overseas for a long time and uh, work for some aerospace companies there. And then when I came back, uh, by that time I'd gotten my kids, I'd gotten custody of, of them over in Asia and returned to Canada. And I decided that this would kind of be my purpose to, to take on this system. I'd actually promised that to a judge at one point. I said, someday I'm going to get my kids back and I will, I'll come back and, you know, wage war. <laughs> There's an angry side. I will wage war on the family law system. Yeah, but that that's the energy, the passion, isn't it? The anger. That is, you know, it's, it's not like a it's not like a a brutal Hulk, uh, you know, berserker type anger. It the it, it's a passion, but it but it does have anger as a component of it for sure because the destruction that the family law system causes to not just to the individuals who go through it, but to our society, it's I don't even know how to begin measuring it. You know the. The, the research is that, you know, from teenage pregnancy, drug issues, um, poverty for, for, for women, for men, for single parents, uh, 80, something like 80-some percent of our prison population, like they, they all go back to, to broken families. You know, it's insane. Like the correlation is something like R.97, which for people who don't know statistics means it's like, you know, if you find a person in prison and you ask them about their family background – it's like there's a, a huge chance, 90 plus percent, that that person came from a broken family. If you look at teenage pregnancy, dropout rates, problems with the law, drug use, um, it's just enormous. The cost to our society in dollars and cents, which is perhaps the motivator for politicians, is off the charts. The cost in, in the stress, the wasted energy, the energy, you know, I'm fairly well academically trained. The energy I put into my legal case, I probably could have done three PhDs. It was literally that much energy. And the value added to society, the value added to my life, to, it's, it's nothing. There was almost nothing added to this world by that. You know, I was recently, with COVID, I was scanning documents from my own case, you know, just because I want to keep a digital record. And I'm scanning document after document. And, you know, we've got memorandums of argument and we've got, 
you know, affidavits and concise letters and they're scanning and scanning going like, I know I was teaching like a full-time course load at McEwen University and I was teaching at Mount Royal going through this and I don't know how I survived. I, I don't know. Like, how did I do it? I kind of, even now I look back and I've amazed myself, but it was all that work. You know, I reread these documents and a lot of them didn't really get read or properly acknowledged, which happens a lot in family court. Um, it was so much energy and nothing came out of it. And that's a cost to our society. Oh yeah. I totally agree with that. Uh, one quick question. And again, I'll, I don't want to go into too much depth of this because we have other podcasts potentially we can do on this subject, but um, why do you think that the system is so broken here in Canada and let alone Alberta? What's your thoughts on that? Well, I, I have some theories. Um, and these are theories based on life experience. I, I'm, you know, I, yes, am I an academic? Was I a professor? Sure. But I also work in, in companies and in corporations and I have that real world life experience and I've traveled and lived in other countries. And so I have a lot of, you know, like a jeweler with multiple glasses. I have multiple lenses I can slip down to see the world. And that's really beneficial for what I do. And I think it's a beneficial way to look at the world for anybody. You know, I wish more of our politicians had a, uh, a diverse life, you know, in their history. Uh, but I think, I think the initial issue is that we took systems that are highly adversarial, such as criminal law and, and civil, you know, civil contract law, and we transferred those same adversarial systems to family law. And these kind of systems really have no place in that setting, you know, where, where the stakes are so high, where, you know, you've taken people who actually cared and loved each other at one point, and now they're, you know, they're very much at each other's throats over things, and there's a lot of feelings and vindictiveness, you know, this isn't random stuff. Um, and it just, it just doesn't work. You know, I think that's kind of the basis. They, they've brought these adversarial systems in and they shouldn't be there. Um, there's also the issue that it's not funded or treated by our, by our society in the same way. And let me give you a very sort of a common example. Let's say that Frank and Sally um, get into a fight. You know, Frank's a delivery pizza guy. Sally's at her home and Frank's delivering the pizza. And in the doorway of the home, they get in some kind of altercation and and somehow a pizza gets thrown at someone or a pizza slice and police get called, you know, and the police come over there and they're making, I don't know, so many dollars per hour funded by the state. And they do their investigation. They interview Sally, they interview Frank, they maybe talk to the neighbors. Maybe the neighbor across the road has a webcam or a security cam that could look at the doorway and they investigate everything. And they, you know, they, they do reports and they check. Maybe they do DNA on the pizza slice, you know, who got hit with the pepperoni. I, I don't know. But when it comes to court, the courts could have got Frank and Sally there, or in this case, maybe they have the crown. The crown is representing the other side. And the crown says, yes, he threw this pizza or she threw this pizza. And right. the person denies it. And now the court says, well, what's the evidence? And now these police officers step up, these investigative teams, these forensic you know, pathologists, whatever, they step up and they start putting down all this evidence, right? And so the court has some evidence, some third-party independent evidence to consider. Now let's look at the other situation. Frank and Sally are a married couple. They get an altercation. A pizza gets thrown. Police get called. Now they're told it's a domestic situation. It's not stranger beat stranger. It's domestic. Now the police treat that very, very differently. They're not really interested in who threw the pizza. They're interested in someone's got to leave the home to avoid the conflict maybe. Um, these people have to maybe have a protection or to keep them apart. 
Now, at the end of the day, the police, perhaps someone has to leave the home. There's a protection order that will be reviewable in a couple of weeks. But in the meantime, they're, they're kept apart and society goes, ah, we're safe. You know, of course, mm-hmm. now someone's not seeing their children. They're away from their home. It, it's brutal on them, but we feel we've protected society. When these people finally go in front of a judge, Frank says, Sally threw the pizza at me. Sally says, Frank threw the pizza at me. Judge says, what's the evidence? Well, all we have is what Frank said and what Sally said. Police might say there's a statement here, but the police haven't done any real investigation. They haven't talked to the neighbors. They haven't necessarily gone around collecting a bunch of evidence. We certainly don't have, you know, DNA people. And, you know, so it comes down to the court goes, well, we don't know. (laughs) You know, he says, she said, we don't know. And so this lack of clear, concrete evidence that the courts can use to make decisions puts them into kind of a limbo state. And the courts don't deal very well with these sorts of, of states of he said, she said. And uh, it often comes down to what people consider credibility. And when it comes down to subjective credibility, you have a lot of biases, a lot of things that can influence uh, your mind when it comes to these sorts of things. Yeah, because you've got to remember as well as an applicant of uh, in court, you've got to remember the judge sees this all the time. You know, if they're dealing with these cases, maybe what, three or four cases a day, maybe five cases a day, they're hearing the same type of scenarios going on. Is Try that- 30. Well, if you, if you go into docket court, there's typically 20 plus, you know, 30 cases in, in daily family law docket court. And the idea is to give 20 minutes aside. Uh, so essentially it's supposed to be 10 minutes, 10 minutes for each side that often gets warped, but, uh, yeah. So the judges try to get through 20 or 30. Now, a lot of those, you know, if you ever sit in family law, you'll see a lot of them go through very quickly. There's consent orders. Um, there's things where they simply decide to adjourn, you know, so those might take care of a third of, of the, the full docket it goes through pretty quick, but yeah, the rest of it gets argued about. Now, here's a funny thing, David, you may not know this. Now, you know how important children are to their parents. Oh, with that. Well, here, yeah, I mean, that's people will fight to the death for their children. We decide in a 20 minute docket court hearing often, you know, where kids are going to go and stay. Now, we call it interim order or short term temporary order, but a lot of these turn into long term orders because the justice system is just so slow. So, quite often, where kids are going to go after some sort of a separation, if the courts decide it, they're often deciding in 10, 15, 20 minutes. And can you imagine, you know, if every party submits an application, an affidavit, there might be a cross application, an affidavit on the other side, response affidavits, update affidavits, supplemental affidavits. And this judge comes in and is like, a, this is one of the 30 cases. You know, he might have 30, 40 pages of reading on that one case. Um, a lot of these materials don't, in my opinion, get the, the due and proper consideration. And the funny thing is these documents cost hundreds of dollars to produce. You know, if a lawyer writes an affidavit for you, it's costing you hundreds of dollars. And I can't say it's not looked at, but when I see sometimes the way the judges talk about cases and stuff, it's pretty clear, in my opinion, that these people didn't really read the materials. And maybe that's fair. They, they don't have the time. I mean, 30 30 cases with say 20 pages for each case, it's, it's would be superhuman and, and judges are pretty amazing at reading and digesting written materials quickly. But I think that's even beyond what they can normally do. So I, I suppose the point being is that although the, the system is broken, maybe it's outdated. Also, the other thing is the capacity issue. It's there's a volume of what's happening there. That's really 
making that even more apparent, you know, that the system is not really coping very well. But here's the thing, and I, I wish, you know, um, Mackenzie Friend is, is the way I do it and the way I intend for it to evolve is to be a little bit disruptive because the, the old systems simply don't work. We need new ways. Um, can people deal with 30 docket court hearings in a day? With technology and stuff today, there, there are ways to do it better and faster, but the system's not engaging in those ways. I think for me, part of the frustration is I used to you know, be a senior manager and it was kind of like I fixed broken processes quite often. And I went in with authority and big budgets and I called meetings and we would go through a process and divorce and separation is just a process in the legal system, really. And you go through the process and you'd map out where the broken elements are, where the weak elements are, or maybe where the absolutely no value added elements are. And you start to cross those things out, find out a way to get around them, to delete them. And I don't think they're doing that in our legal system. We're still doing a lot of things the way they were done years and years and years ago. And, it, you know, people, I think now are frustrated. They have a higher expectation mm-hmm. and the courts aren't meeting that. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with myself, David Wilson, and Tom Matty. About this time, I noticed a distinct change in quality. It appeared that we were still on the free version of our video conferencing software. Or as we say in the UK, we didn't put a shilling in the meter. Anyway, I apologise about the quality going on from this point. But Tom still had great things to say. And I really wanted to dive down into more practical advice of what you need to do when a relationship is breaking down. Listen, I want to just move on a little bit and add some practical advice because I know it's always a very daunting task when something like this happens to you personally. I've been through it, I'll admit, a couple of times in my life and it's been pretty hairy. You know, you have to uh, learn much on the foot. You, you know. couldn't learn the first time, could you? No, you don't. I mean, but, but apart, you know, and I've, I've had the experience of two distinct systems, be it the UK system and the Canadian system, and they've been two very different experiences. But here's the thing. I want to really sort of leave people with some practical advice. If they know things are going south in their relationship, what are the things, the first couple of first things that they really need to think about, you know, even before they've separated, if they've got that feeling that this isn't working, you know, what's, what's your advice to start with? What should you be thinking on the way that you should be thinking? (laughs) Let go of your anger. (laughs) It's one of the first ones. I mean, Remember, anger can be either channeled to good things to get stuff done, or it can be very much turned into sort of a vindictive, vengeful thing. Um, people have to let go of that, you know. And, and it, you know, it's, it's like when people have a huge argument, and then you ask them a year later, "Well, what were you fighting about?" Um, people go, well, "I don't really know." Even even like the things that people divorce about, you know, in two three years won't really matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does matter is, you know, what kind of relationship you have with your kids, uh, and that means as parents together, you know, you still, you're still going to have some relationship. You're not going to be able to just kick this person out of your life. Um, certainly not easily. You know, the courts are very reluctant to actually remove full and complete guardianship and paternal rights from somebody unless they are egregiously bad for the children. And that's usually seldom not the case. People are often at odds with each other in a relationship, but they, they have a fine relationship with their children. So, you know, I think um, you've got to think about the long-term future. Start, stop thinking about your sort of your current emotions. You know, oh, he had an affair on me or, you know, she, um, she has been mean to me and hasn't uh, mm-hmm. been nice to me. So whatever, you know, split it up. You've got to, got to let go of that personal side of it and start thinking about 
you know, where do I want to be in two years? Because this person's not going to be out of my life. So what should that relationship look like in two years? Can we call each other up and say, hey, I've got a, a business meeting in Seattle and I have to fly to it. Can you watch the kids uh, for a week while I go? And that's all like, yeah, you know, no problem. So, so still essentially being a parent, that's the point, isn't it? You've got to remember at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether you're married or separated. Right. I mean, having enemies in life is, is really not a good thing ever. You know, you don't want to have a lot of enemies. You'd rather have a lot more friends. And um, so, you know, consider that as well. One of my uh, criticisms of the court system in Canada, the family law system in Canada and in the United States, is that we have this idea that the, the best interests of the children are first and foremost. But it's not that they're like in an equation where they're weighted the most heavily. They are 100% of the equation. Mm-hmm. But the mom and dad are people too. And so you get these odd cases, you know, where I see like in criminal law, we, we have a lot of standards for treating criminals, no matter how egregiously bad they've been, no matter how terrible the crimes they've permitted, they still have a lot of rights and they still get treated in, in many humane ways by the court system. But in family law, this may shock you. I have seen people treated very inhumanely, like terrible, no consideration for what they're going through, for what it's destroying in their lives. Absolutely none. And the argument is, well, it's in the best interest of the kids. And so that weighting of the equation to be totally for the children and nothing for mom, nothing for dad, who are still human beings and still have feelings and still have to survive and, and thrive and produce for our society and be you know, productive and happy to build a better future and a better world for their children, for your children, you know, for everybody. Um, we, we can just totally disregard them in family law quite often. And it, it's, it's all in that predicated idea that the only thing that matters is the children. And I disagree with that. I think, it's, it's a, it's, I think any rational, reasonable person would disagree that it's 100% that the children are the absolutely only consideration. What happens in family law is when you attach the children to one of the parents, now that parent, because of their relationship to the children, becomes important. And the parent is not attached to the children, becomes significant yeah that's a really interesting concept actually because you know they, they apply that in business and i think it was uh was it richard branson said he looks after his staff more than he'll look after his customers because ultimately if you look after your staff and get that right and they you know you feed their soul by virtue of the fact they're happy they look after the customers that's the point so i suppose there's a very similar relationship with children and parents if you were to put the same effort into the parents and bring the parents up and support them and really get them firing all six cylinders or whatever you, the expression you say here, um, then maybe there's a chance that they both can input to the children and give them the support and love that they need, even though they're separated. You know, that's, that's the point, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really, you know, that's a really good idea. And uh, by the way, I also have like a, a business degree as well. <laughs> so, you know, I have an appreciation for what Mr. Branson says in that, you know, it, it's, it's funny, you know, if you, um, you know, when I worked in business and I worked for big multinationals and we kind of those quarterly periods, you know, where the stock analysts have to see if we've met our goals and stuff. And there's so much stress and so much concern. And I never understood it because really, if we just made a great product, then the profit would just be there and we could kind of go through life relaxing. And it's funny, there are things like that. And I think you're right. Make sure the parents are good and can be good parents. And a lot of these other things will disappear. But um, Okay, well, and... 
Sorry to interrupt. I was just going to ask you a quick question, actually, because um, you did allude to it very, very earlier on about the kind of support mechanisms that, that are there, not just for children and people going through divorce, but also for parents as well. Could you maybe talk to some of those that you kind of alluded to earlier on? Well, most of the supports that I, I talk about are legal supports for the litigants, right? And by the time you're in court, it's kind of too late, uh, unfortunately. There is a, a set of courses here in Alberta uh, called Parenting After Separation and Parenting After Separation High Conflict and FOCUS, which is Focus on Communication and Separation. The Parenting After Separation course is actually a mandatory course. So anybody who is separating or in the process of separating, they have to take that course and the certificate of completion has to be filed with the court that they're in. Uh, for provincial court, there's a few other hoops to jump through before you can embark on the litigation process as a self-rep. But um, those courses are good because they, they deal a lot with the emotions and what people are going through and how they can parent under these circumstances. But they're very brief and they're really the only course. And after that, you get into all the services that help you go through the court. And those are much more extensive. So you've got, you know, legal aid and resolution services and the Edmonton Legal Clinic and you've got lawyer referral. Um, and these are, you know, focused on how to go through the litigation process. But really, if, uh, getting back to that first thing you should do is try to stay out of litigation. Or, you know, what I often tell clients is if you can at least, if there's 10 things that you guys are battling over, if you can please agree on five, you know, and only the five that you have to litigate. You're taking, you're saving so much money, time, stress, energy, you know, negative emotions that do that. By the time you get there, I mean, yes, those services are all there. But in terms of, like, I think you were sort of alluding to like, how do these help you be a better parent or a better person to get along? There's not that much there um, that I'm aware of. Like I tend to deal with the people that are already in conflict. Typically as well from your experience and uh, uh, how long does it take before emotions go out the equation? Because for us as human beings, we're, we're really driven by emotions. It feeds the soul. It feeds our fear system. You know, it, it's not logical a lot of the time because it's based on very basic things that was evolved as, as we've evolved as human beings. But typically do you find that, and again, it's a very general question I know, and it's very hard because people are different, but can you get people together after three to months is that a realistic time scale or does it not like work like that you know well your mckenzie friend does we try to pull people out of litigation at every step of the way and people don't know that sometimes you get pulled into the litigation and it's like a whirlpool you know you think you're going to go to docket court once to discuss parenting there's going to be an order and you're done but so many people it doesn't work like that they go in with this expectation you know, and that's where a lot of these bad emotions come from because people have expectations of our justice system. So they go with this expectation, I'm going to have one hearing, it's going to cost me $2,500 with my lawyer or something, and I'll be done. Well, they go in, the judge says, well, I don't know, not enough, not enough stuff. You know, this seems too complicated. Um, let's, say, let's, let's send you guys to special chambers. Now, you never wanted to go to special chambers. You don't even know what special chambers is. The next thing you know, you know you're on your way. And special chambers cost a lot more than docket court. And, and maybe you'll go to docket court again for something about property, not parenting. And then you're off to another special chambers, you know, and if the special chambers doesn't get it done, maybe you're off to a trial. Um, and certainly the one I see a lot with parenting is if there's, you know, if both parents, and this gets into that, you know, investigation thing, both parents are saying, the kids are saying different things. Court can't tell. 
You know, Frank says the kids don't want to be with mom. Mom says that's a lie. Kids want to be with her, right? Or vice versa. And court doesn't know what do the kids really want, right? Well, they do have an investigative team called psychologists, but these people cost like $300 an hour. (laughs) So there's no state provided police detective to go and and interview and get the real evidence, right? And then, yeah, it's, uh, it's a mess. And often the court says, well, until we get these reports or something, we're not going to do anything. And so the kids might be in a very bad situation or the parent, and, you know, now um, the anger just goes up and up because you're not getting your, your problem solved. And now you've also got these extra challenges of paying off these bills and waiting for decisions and stuff. So it's, uh, it's sad. It does, it does terrible things to people. People go into family law. Um, and if they get into like a conflict case, I've never seen a person come out of it who's not, you know, radically changed. I would agree with that. And I think, you know, you make some very great advice there is, you know, try and stay out of litigation, even though you're angry and you want things moved along. It's actually going to move a lot quicker if you stay out of litigation and cost you a lot less. It, it can, yeah, for sure. I mean, certainly everybody should make the attempt. And in fact, the attempt is actually mandated in Section 4 of the Rules of Court, Managing Litigation. You know, you are supposed to make some attempts to um, to try and work things out without litigation. But quite often what I see is parties who perhaps have a vested interest in the conflict escalating because they, they can make a lot of money from it. Um, or they just, I don't know, maybe they think it's, it's a waste of time to try and work things out. Uh, sometimes these rules get bypassed and I wish, I wish people would follow them more. You know, we see so many things in our society today where we do have good rules. We do have good laws. um, And somehow they just don't get enforced or they get bypassed a lot. And that sometimes uh, leads to big challenges. Okay. So just to give people a quick overview and uh, we'll obviously put your contact details at the end of the podcast. What's your limitations though? I think to be fair to people, we've shown you what you can do. Obviously we've flipped the coin over. What, where are you limited in terms of your experience and abilities or where the, you know, the law constricts you? What's, what's, where are you on that? Well, there is an act in Alberta called the legal professions act. And that has sets out the rules of, you know, what people who are part of the law society and, and part of the system, you know, can do and, and what say other people can't, because we don't necessarily want non-professionals mucking about in such big things uh, in some ways. So, and that's, you know, that's why lawyers make the big bucks, right? Uh, so the things that really I can't touch as a McKenzie friend is I can't sort of say, well, first off, I can't give any legal advice. So I can't tell people what to do. It's a bit of a gray area. You know, what is legal advice and what is just, you know, uh, voicing an opinion or sharing an experience. And as I understand it, um, it's basically like saying, hey, this is what you've got to do, or this is what's necessary for you to do. And as a McKenzie friend, you know, you're a good McKenzie friend is never going to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really up to you. McKenzie friends, what, what, I, what we do is we empower people to do things for themselves. We give them the education, we point them in the right direction, we point them to the right resources, and sometimes those resources are lawyers, and we, we send them off to access those, and then they might come back um, with a document they filled out, and we'll take a look at it, you know, with them, and say, yeah, well, you know, 
this kind of reads like you, you can't say she's a nasty beep, 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 you know, in your affidavit, that's really not going to go over well. <laughs> maybe you've got a bit too emotion in this, you know, maybe you should take it out. So, uh, but we can't say like, put this in or take this out, right? We have to, you know, that's really up to the, the people who do it. Um, we might share opinions or experiences and say, well, you know, the last guy I know who wrote like this, he kind of got himself in some trouble or, you know, I know people have written this and that worked really good for them. So you might, might consider doing the same. And then the other element is you can't draft legal documents, right? So um, most of the work that I do with all of it really is off documents that are already available somewhere. Now the documents, if you go to the court forms in Alberta courts is two areas. You can find court forms for the court of Queens bench, which is the, the higher court in Alberta. That's basically the federal court. And you can find different sets of forms for the um, lower court, the provincial court. And then you can find appellate court forms in three different areas. If you go through those forms, that's where a McKenzie friend is great to have because the forms are there, they're standard, but it's a mishmash of, of forms. And it can be very confusing for, for most people. So the McKenzie friend helps you find the right forms. and get them. Okay. And, and sort of probably one final question. It always comes down to cost because we know that this is an expensive process. Typically, in your experience of kind of Mackenzie friends and helping people out, you know, where where would you, from a practical point of view, fall in terms of a cost scale? You know, in terms of how you work. Yeah, um, I would say on average, um, there's two ways to save by using a Mackenzie friend uh, versus sort of the traditional lawyer. And again, I think lawyers are good, and people should look research something called a limited scope retainer, which is uh, a system where the lawyer doesn't necessarily help you with everything. And it opens up the door for you to do a lot more yourself. So with a McKenzie friend, you save in two ways. One, McKenzie friends don't charge as much as lawyers. So you're just from that very, very direct, you know, you're saving probably, you know, 75% from, from a typical lawyer cost. Okay. So it's, it's about one quarter, you know, or even less, uh, uh -huh. depending. Um, your McKenzie friend incorporated where the company I founded, we actually charge on a, a sliding scale a little bit. Because we're, we're a very altruistic organization. We, we do this a lot because we just want to help people. And I have seen people lose their children because they couldn't afford, you know, a very high rate for a, a lawyer or they couldn't have the time to access or the understanding to access some of the free services like, you know, resolution services. And so there's very bad outcomes sometimes. And it's not reasonable or just that these people, you know, take such a, a terrible hit to their lives. Mm -hmm. Just do the money. So, in general, uh, it's not a huge gap, but you know we have a base rate. But if you make a lot of money, we might charge you a bit above the base rate. But the good thing about that is, you know, the extra you pay helps somebody who is really, you know, struggling. Fantastic. But yeah, well, so that's the first savings. And the second savings is, as I said, we empower people. So, you know, if these other people, strangers, fill in your court documents and stuff like that, you can actually do a lot of that yourself. And so that's also the other area you save. So at the end of the day, a McKenzie friend can save you certainly, you know, half, but much more often than half. And my experience is many people do as well or better uh, by themselves, you know, or with a McKenzie friend um, than they, they can do with a lawyer, you know, in, depending how complex their case is and, and what's being discussed. And that's the fair point. It depends how complex the case is, but that's something that you can definitely help people look at and guide them in the right direction and say, well, here's some of the options that you have. 
Yes. Yeah. Probably one of the best services we do, all of our clients, and I, I learned this lesson maybe the hard way a couple of times with some early clients. We won't take on a client until they've done an intake. And the intake typically takes a couple of hours, but we really go over the history of the matter with the person, uh, find out you know how they came to be in the situation. It's fascinating to me how people go from being in love and um, getting married and having children. And then at some point, you know, things break down and now they're in a, a very terrible place with each other. And it's important, you know, to understand that history because within it, um, you can understand the emotions of the people you're dealing with and try to, you know, get them into a place where those emotions are not making them dysfunctional. Uh, Mackenzie friends do a lot of counseling, but we're kind of selfish counselors. You know, if I counsel people and I share, like a lot of it's just that you can understand because you've been there, you know, a lot of people are so happy to meet somebody who actually understands what they're going through. They can talk a lot, <laughs> an awful lot. Um, but it's, you know, the point of sort of talking to them and counseling with them and discussing with them is I just want to make them functional enough to do that next step that will fix their, their situation. Because ultimately getting their kids back or getting into a situation where they're not being, you know, financially devastated by support payments or, um, getting into mediation or getting out of litigation, that's what's going to make them happier and better. You know, seeing a therapist every week or a psychologist uh, regularly and stuff is not as good as actually solving the root cause problems. And that's something you learn in in business, right? That that's there's in academia and when I worked in big companies. In academia, it was great. We'd do all this research, we'd gather all this data, and we'd make sure that everything was right. Well, or statistically, this sense is right. And statistically, this sense is a little less right and stuff. But it took a lot of time, took a lot of discussion, took a lot of data gathering. When you've got a broken machine in a factory and you're losing hundreds of thousands of dollars if you can't get that running up, it's just get it done somehow. And you're not you're reasonable in a good way, but get it done for now and get on. And so you try to, to just get people into those progressive steps you know, the machine will get completely fixed at some point. But for now, we have to get you to take a step towards getting it fixed. So there's a bit of counseling element to Mackenzie Friends for sure. Yeah, it's really practical advice. Okay, so if somebody wants to get a hold of you, uh, what's the best way? I, I know you've got a website, which I think is mackenziefriend.ca. Is that correct? Yeah, it's mackenziefriend.ca. And that, there's no A in that. So it's M-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E and then friend.ca. And that's our website. That's fantastic. And uh, do you have a web, oh, sorry, an email address that, that's appropriate for people to maybe reach out to you initially? Yeah, you can use your Mackenzie Friend Inc. at gmail.com. Okay. Can you just repeat both those website names and email again for us? Sure. It's www.mackenziefriend.ca and it's your Mackenzie Friend Inc. at gmail.com. Fantastic. Well, Tom, as ever, it's always been a great pleasure to speak to you, and I always enjoy our company immensely. And uh, I'm so glad that you were our first invitee on our first set of podcasts, because I think really what you're doing is phenomenal. And uh, I don't think this is going to be the only podcast, because I'd like to invite you back probably every couple of weeks to talk about different cases and things that you've come across. Would you be up for that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the more the word gets out, you know, people don't understand just how much broken families cost our society um and i mean i can understand we have to we, we're gonna have broken families but the way they're broken up and the systems that deal with broken families they're doing so much damage 
there is, you know, um, well, we talked about the wasted energy and the wasted money, but if we could recover that and channel it to productive things, I mean, we, we'd have accomplished so much more in this world and we'd be leaving such a great, a much greater legacy to our children and our grandchildren. You've been listening to On Another Track with David Wilson. My guest today has been Tom Matty, the original North American Mackenzie friend and an outspoken advocate for parents' rights in the annals of the divorce courts. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in the series. Just look out for On Another Track with David Wilson on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated, keeping us safe on the roads of North America.